Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop. In this episode, Marie Catherides goes looking for James Patrick Maine, an ex-convict who once owned land in Nidri, where Marie now lives. The vital periods of history are those which form the life stream of history, the story of how the human race has toiled and lived and loved down through the ages. History is the story of human achievement, of man's attempt to live and to make the best of his life. So said Bevel Hugh Molesworth, educationist and broadcaster, in a lecture to the Workers' Educational Association in Brisbane in 1926. Perhaps this perspective explains the continued interest in family history. People love to personalise the past. It's not that the personal past is valued over other kinds of history, but it is undoubtedly easier to connect with and adds to the mystery and intrigue our mundane lives crave. Today's participatory historical culture affords us the opportunity to delve into the personal lives of those who came before us, forming temporal connections not only between the past and the present, but the future, as well as the physical world. My own historical research can attest to this. An online search of Melbourne's northwestern suburbs where I live revealed a parish map of the area from the mid-19th century, the parish of Dudagala an intersection of what is now Essendon, East Keelor, Nidri and Airport West. The map presented a landscape I was unfamiliar with, a landscape of vast pastoral lands, properties spanning hundreds of acres and very few streets, a site difficult to imagine prior to modern urbanisation. But one thing was familiar to me, a name, J.P. Faulkner. A prominent businessman, politician and early settler of the Port Phillip district in the 1830s, Faulkner would be familiar to many students of Australian colonial history. He had purchased a property in the area in 1850, but I was more interested in the neighbouring property where I currently reside, Section 12, purchased in 1846 by J.P. Maine. Unlike Faulkner, Maine has remained a largely unknown entity even though he also contributed to the settlement of this area, as well as being significantly involved in the industrial and political landscape of the city of Melbourne. The fact that this man once owned and lived on the land where I currently reside was enough to spark my curiosity and set me on a path of discovery. How did he toil, live and love? And what can be said of his attempt to live and make the best of life? Who was the man, James Patrick Maine? His story begins in 1802 in Midlothian in Scotland. Maine was born to Ethelrose McGill and Patrick Peter Maine, a painter by trade. James, or Patrick as he was known, was likely just starting to walk as 10-year-old Faulkner was arriving in Australia from London with his convict father. An only child, Patrick was much like his father, and by the age of 16 he was working as a painter's apprentice. It was at this age that Patrick was caught housebreaking and was arrested for the theft of monogrammed handkerchiefs. Sentenced to transportation to Australia for life, 
with a term of seven years to be served working under a contractor. He arrived in Van Diemen's Land aboard the Hibernia in November 1819. The grey-eyed, flaxen-haired young Patrick would never see his parents or his homeland again. The Scots make up quite a small group compared to English and even Irish transportees, so we don't know all that much about Scottish convicts of this period. Patrick was young, as was the majority of his cohort of criminals from Scotland, most of whom were below the age of 30. They were generally skilled workers and literate, but they were also considered to be the worst of the worst, perhaps because Scottish law was more lenient for minor crimes. Interestingly, the Hibernia's muster roll included the remark that Patrick was a good boy. So how did this good boy end up a criminal in Australia? Most Scots who emigrated during this time were looking for a better life and were driven out by the scarcity of arable land in Scotland. If they were impoverished and wanted to escape from it, crime offered a way out which may explain why most Scottish convicts were convicted for petty crimes like theft. A hard worker, Patrick was granted a ticket of leave in 1823, after only four years of his seven-year term. These were usually only rewarded to well-behaved convicts, so it was fitting for Patrick to receive one so soon. Although the ticket of leave allowed him to seek paid employment, his movement was confined within a certain district and he was not allowed to trade or own property, leaving him in that limbo between imprisonment and freedom. But this only lasted two years, until he received a certificate of freedom in 1825, along with a conditional pardon, the only condition being that he couldn't return to the United Kingdom, but that was a small price to pay. Within a year, he found himself married to Maria Louisa MacLeod, who was born in Hobart in 1807. Her father, John Alexander MacLeod, like Patrick, was a convict, sentenced to transportation for life from Lancashire before settling east of the Derwent River in Van Diemen's Land, where there was a large settlement of ex-convicts. Maria was a pregnant bride at their April wedding, and less than two months later, their first son, John James Main, was born. He would be their first of ten children, and we'll get to know him a bit more shortly. At this stage, although the family was free to move out of Hobart, they remained there. Patrick worked predominantly as a carpenter, and his wife Maria kept a convict clothing store on Macquarie Street. Tragically, her father passed away by accidental drowning in the Derwent River in 1833. Legal disputes regarding the ownership of MacLeod's Sandy Bay property plagued Patrick for another three years. Patrick claimed possession of the property, and an action was brought against him by another claimant to the land for taking possession of it. Patrick was detained for approximately one month. While in prison, his wife and four children, John James, Alexander William, and twins Daniel Edgar and Maria Louisa, stayed at his sister-in-law's Davy Street home. During an examination before a judge, it turned out that Patrick had no other property, only some clothing, furniture, a wheelbarrow, and some tools that he was planning to sell so he wouldn't go into debt. Business had been far from good for Patrick. 
In fact, he accumulated losses in excess of £300 over the last 18 months and had been unable to recover debts owed to him. Later that year, Patrick was declared insolvent. This only set him back for a short time, though. Within two years, he and his family moved to the Port Phillip district of New South Wales and settled in Mooney Ponds in the parish of Dudagala, remembering that Victoria didn't separate from New South Wales until 1851. Patrick restarted his career, setting up his business as a builder. This area provided many opportunities for Patrick because of innovations in the field of construction and building. It wasn't long before Patrick's luck changed, and his business, like the economy, was booming. He couldn't believe his luck when in 1841 he was contracted to build the Melbourne Customs House and Jail, a place his eldest son would later become well acquainted with. In order to transport stone from a quarry in Flemington, Patrick had also erected a temporary bridge over the Mooney Ponds Creek around 1843. Having this prior experience with building bridges, Patrick advertised for tenders to supply granite for the construction of Princess Bridge in 1846. His tenders were successful, but between 1846 and 1848, he encountered obstacles in extracting granite from the Flemington Quarry. Patrick's one-year contract ended before he was able to supply all the granite. He was assured by Superintendent Charles Latrobe that if he continued to supply it until the completion of the bridge, he would be well compensated when Victoria would inevitably separate from New South Wales. Separation came in 1851, but this compensation was nowhere to be seen for a while yet. To Patrick's frustration, the construction of Princess Bridge which was a responsibility of the New South Wales government at the time it began, was still being contested years later in the Victorian Parliament. Across his business career, Patrick was relentless in chasing up debts owed to him, and he had no qualms about writing petitions or taking people to court. Although six years have this day elapsed since this colony obtained separation from New South Wales, your petitioner has not received the promised compensation, nor have the accounts for his contract ever been settled. It is well known to many members of your Honourable House and to many of the principal residents of the colony at the time when these events occurred that your petitioner sacrificed a large amount of very valuable property to enable him to carry out this and other engagements, and that he has, in convergence, been reduced from affluence to comparative poverty. Patrick's business interests extended beyond building and construction. Scots in colonial Australia were highly regarded for their traditional strengths, civic involvement, entrepreneurship and skilled working of the land. Patrick was no exception. He got involved in the city's political sphere as well as the rural farming industry. In 1846, Patrick was requested by the Burgesses of Burkward to run in their upcoming elections as they considered him a fit and proper person to represent their interests in the town council. Patrick was honoured to be considered for the position, but unfortunately lost out to another candidate, the editor of the Port Phillip Gazette. In terms of farming interests, his sales lists in early 1847 
include a large number of cows, horses, sheep, bulls and other livestock. That Dudagala property I mentioned earlier? It's likely that this 640-acre freehold property was used for stock and breeding. He sold it in 1848. Patrick's affinity for farming came from his background in the Scottish lowlands, an area widely known for the tradition of Lothian farming and the industry, skill, hard work and intelligence of its people. These qualities, along with Patrick's experience with farming and his entrepreneurial spirit, were key in creating his wealth, and land legislation in the 19th century provided a great opportunity for settlers like Patrick to do just that, create wealth. At any given time, he had numerous properties under his name, including a 16,000-acre run in Charrington, a property in St Kilda, dwellings on Collins Street and in Carlton and the Western Port, and the Pastoral Hotel, containing 25 apartments and built from stone on the corner of Queen Street and Little Burke Street. According to the Port Phillip Patriot and Morning Advertiser in 1846, the hotel was the most substantial building in the town of Melbourne. Patrick had a keen eye for new opportunities where he felt he could apply his skills. One of these opportunities presented itself in 1860, where both he and his eldest son, John, applied to join an expedition to traverse the continent of Australia from south to north. I have gained an experience during 23 years travelling in Victoria, which I have explored, I believe, more widely yet more minutely than any other person, the last eight of which I have spent principally in prospecting on every goldfield in the colony yet opened, and many others not publicly known. I trust your committee will not think me presumptuous in tendering my services. I have a full knowledge of the management of similar expeditions in these colonies and studied and calculated by comparison with all the great travellers of New Holland, Africa and Asia. I have a thorough knowledge of mechanics and sufficient nautical skills to build a boat or vessel and work or navigate her under pressing circumstances should such need arise. I have a full knowledge of the management of stock of all kinds and can lay down a chart of the expedition mathematically. I have every confidence in my ability to bring the expedition to a satisfactory conclusion. While Patrick's application boasted his many practical skills and useful life experience, perhaps it was for the best that he was not successful. Few members of the ill-fated Burke and Wills expedition survived. However, this misfortune meant that both Patrick and John were home and able to farewell their wife and mother Maria as she passed away from tuberculosis in 1861. This would only be one among many losses that the two of them would face in life's journey. In many ways, John took after his father. Over the years, he found work as a farmer and a carpenter and also inherited his father's litigious nature perhaps to a worrying extent. Between 1868 and 1879, John became a regular visitor at the Victorian Petty Court, often as a complainant, but almost equally as often as a defendant of various misdemeanours. He was accused of trespassing, driving sheep off property belonging to others, breaking down a fence, and a whole host of other petty crimes. 
As a complainant, most of his accusations were just as trivially mundane. Outstanding debts owed to him, refusal to pay for the trespass of a pig, and even accusing members of the Shire Council of Bacchus Marsh of not destroying thistles on his land. By this stage, John had a family of his own. He married Isabella Johnston in 1851, and they had seven children. To say that John's family life was difficult, though, would be an understatement. Between 1856 and 1867, John lost two brothers and four sisters, along with his mother. In 1876, he also lost his father, Patrick, due to bronchitis. Patrick died intestate, that is, without having written a will. John, seizing the opportunity, quickly took legal action to become the administrator of his father's estate. You might recall the pastoral hotel on the corner of Queen and Little Burke Street. Patrick had sold it in 1846. Some decades later, in 1889, John brought action against some tenants on this land in the Supreme Court, claiming he was entitled to the possession of the premises as heir-at-law to James Patrick Maine, also demanding £16,000 for payment of rent since the time it had been sold. As it turns out, John had made the same groundless claim three years earlier and at the time had been restrained from pursuing the case until he had paid court fees in full. The second time around, it was clear to the defendants and the court that John couldn't afford the fees and was simply endeavouring to evade the orders made three years earlier by bringing the claim against particular tenants on the land instead of all at once. Suffice to say, John's claim was not successful. This wasn't the first time that John had presented false evidence before a judge or the first time that his unsupported claims were dismissed and given his litigious nature, it would not be the last. Melbourne Punch reported in 1885. John James Maine, who has been in prison, is afflicted with the desire to prosecute people for perjury. His success is not very marked, and his last attempt resulted in the bench dismissing the charge as utterly and entirely groundless. So, up to now, Maine has not been a distinct success. In 1873, John became insolvent. The Argus reported this to be as a result of sickness and death in family and losses by farming and bad debts. I can't help but wonder whether it was due in any part to his countless court fees from failed cases as a complainant or perhaps because of the many times he was sued and found guilty of serious crimes. He became very familiar with the Melbourne jail, which his father had constructed, being sentenced four times for forgery, unlawful assault, and obtaining money under false pretenses, sometimes by going as John MacLeod, his mother's maiden name. By 1894, John had returned to Hobart, his birthplace, which he hadn't visited since his family left when he was 11 or 12 years old. We can't say why John decided to return, but it wasn't long before he made the news, in an article in the Clipper titled A Sir Roger Tichborne in Hobart. Roger Tichborne, in fact, had been an English aristocrat who disappeared at sea in the 1850s, and years later a butcher from Australia appeared claiming he was Tichborne, the long-lost heir of the aristocracy. 
you might already be able to see what John was scheming. A man named John James Maine has created a mild kind of sensation during the past few weeks in Hobart by claiming to be the next of kin of the late Alexander MacLeod, who was a well-known resident of Lower Macquarie Street and a man of considerable means. Maine has lobbed up serenely after an absence of about 50 years from Hobart and says that he is entitled to the property left by MacLeod and alleges that MacLeod's property was willed away whilst he was in a continuous stupor and on the grounds that undue influence was used. Maine threatens the coroner with a writ, claiming £500 damages, and states that he will apply to the court to have MacLeod's body exhumed to prove his contention that deceased was in a constant state of intoxication immediately prior to his death. If Maine proceeds, the case should be about the most interesting one on record. An interesting case indeed. Like the Tichborne claimant, John's ancestry could not be proven, and the case did not proceed. He remained in Hobart until his death in 1910. After all this, who was James Patrick Maine? He was a convict, well-behaved and hard-working. He was a contractor and a carpenter, a builder, a pastoralist, and he was the father of a con man. Both Patrick and his son John faced setbacks and insolvency, but Patrick seized opportunities to better himself and his business. The legacy that he left of a hard-working, entrepreneurial spirit was largely undone by his con man of a son who thrived on lying and thieving. Beyond the buildings that Patrick is still remembered for, all of these details of his life that had been buried by time show us that Patrick was his own person. He can't be defined simply as a convict or a contractor or the father of a con man. History didn't choose to remember Patrick like it did others, but the details of unique human experiences like Patrick's illuminates the complexities of real people real convicts, real struggles, and our common humanity. Not just those who managed to leave their mark and made it into our history books. Make sure you listen in to the next episode when I tell the tragic story of Fireman Christopher G. My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources and contact details at our website, mymarvellousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you.